Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Handsome. For this week's episode, Lucy and I thought we'd take the opportunity to talk about something she and I have a passion for, folklore. In particular, we'll be thinking about the folklore of The Singing Bone, which is Arne Thompson Index number 780. To give it its full name, the Arne Thompson Uther Index, shortened to ATU, was created to try and classify fairy tales and folklore, gathering stories together within defined categories. Entry 780 is entitled The Singing Bone. The general gist of it is a girl is killed and an instrument is made from her bones which, when played, reveals her murderers. One variation of this is the well-known ballad The Twa Sisters. Perhaps, Lucy, as this is your area of expertise, you could give us a summary of the tale of The Twa Sisters. Yeah, of course. Um, In brief, The Twa Sisters tells the story generally of two sisters, one older, one younger, uh, the older one falls in love with a man and the younger one, uh, in in most versions, he courts both of them. So he's a bit of a scoundrel, but they definitely have a falling out over who gets to marry him. It's It's a story of sibling rivalry. It's a murder ballad. The eldest sister pushes the younger one, usually into a river. She gets washed downstream. She gets fished out, typically by a miller's daughter. And then for some unknown reason... Um, a harper comes along, spots her dead body and thinks, wow, that would be a great musical instrument. So I'm going to make that into a harp, and uh, which is the bit that really, yeah, really intrigued me. Uh, anyway, he does this and he brings the harp back to the, the, the girl's parents. And of course, the harp sings the truth of what happened and all is revealed. And generally, the, the eldest girl is then you know, summarily executed or something. And some stories, in some versions, the younger one um, does come back to life. Uh, but the the one I first heard, she just stays as a, a harp forever. I want to say that I feel anyone who wanders along and sees a dead body and goes, oh yeah, I could totally make a musical instrument out of that, really needs their own tale. Uh, which I don't know of in particular, but I do know that T. Kingfisher wrote a book called Minor Mage, which does have a character in it that explores that idea of what kind of person goes along and goes, yep, dead body, that's my musical instrument. Oh, I'm intrigued. I, yeah. <laughs> very I'm, short, very quick read, very good. In fact, I was going to buy it for you and go, you totally need to read this. <laughs> I do. I, I'm intrigued. But the wonderful thing about the ATU is that there are often several variations on the same motif. So while Lucy's novel Sister Song is based on the main part of Entry 780 in The Twa Sisters, I'm currently writing a piece that is based on Variation 780B, classed as the speaking hair. Hair is in uh, long flowing stuff that comes through your head, not little rabbit. In this version, a stepmother buries her stepdaughter alive. The girl's hair grows as wheat and sings of her misfortunes. The girl is dug up alive, hooray, and the stepmother is buried in the same hole. So this is going to be published as part of my uh, Forsaken Fables series and is being polished up as we speak. So it seemed the ideal time for Lucy and I to have a chat about a folklore tale that has inspired both of us and how exactly we've interpreted it. So I have to admit, Lucy, that my story was directly inspired by yours because after I read Sister Song, excellent book, definitely go away and read it. One of my favourites, I'm recommending it to everybody I know. I went to look at the source material and I found my different take on it. So what 
inspired you to write Sister Song and to focus on that particular variation of the tale, given all the ones that there were out there? It really was the transmutation element of the story, uh, the young girl becoming a, a singing bone harp, which really, as I say, it, it, that idea really intrigued me. It's it's not an unusual story on the grounds of it. I mean, sibling rivalry, two women fighting over a man, we've seen this hundreds of times. Um, but what sets it apart is this really grotesque idea of a, a, a human body, a young girl's body being mutilated and reformed uh, in order to dispense justice. And that particular version because there are there are some other ones um but it was the you know I, I wasn't necessarily interested in the sibling rivalry by itself it was the it is what comes from that rivalry and how and how how the situation is resolved because it's resolved in a very alarming and quite gruesome manner <laughs> i'm quite surprised because out of the three of us on this podcast it's usually me and megan who are like oh yeah we love alien and aliens and all this gore and this scariness and there's you going yeah totally i'm, I'm going for this dark tale so you know, are you okay with like darkness if it's in fairy tales and folklore? Is that something that does fascinate you compared to, you know, main, more mainstream horror stories? Yeah, I don't mind darkness much. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big horror fan, but you know, like it's not something I seek out as a genre very often, um, but I don't mind elements of horror in fiction at all. I think, you know, if, if they're used wisely and to further plot and to, you know, build tension and, yeah, for reasons, then I'm, yeah, all for uh, exploring body horror and transmutation. Um, yeah, that's it, it's just fascinating. I really like the bit at the end where they did make her into a harp and I was like, oh, it was very well done because it, it was nicely gory with that being too over the top. I'm debating whether it's okay for, for my 11-year-old to read it. I'll have to reread that scene and, and see. <laughs> I did actually tone it down. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the original version was was slightly worse. Um, it was, I think it was word choices that were slightly worse. I think my editor thought that it, rather than removing whole swathes of extra gore, which, which didn't exist even in the first draft, um, she just said, pick some slightly nicer words <laughs> to, you know, it's still a horrible and horrific scene and it's supposed to be. But, you know, I think what she was getting at is it doesn't need to be OTT. I mean, I obviously am very familiar with the bone harp variation of this particular ballad. So I was really interested to hear about this so-called version B uh, with with hair and wheat. And I've got, again, a, a revenge tale. So the, 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 the core of the story is there. But would you tell me a bit more about the, the hair and the wheat as a motif? Yeah, I don't know why this jumped out at me so much. It just, because there are other versions there and, you know, it was singing this and singing that and whatever. But I just had this wonderful vision of this woman lying in the ground and her hair all spread out and just coming up at wheat. So for me, personally, the reason I chose this one is because just an image lodged in my head and then I couldn't get it out. What's that painting they have with um, Ophelia floating down the river with all her hair out? It was a, it was a bit like that. Um, uh, yeah, I know the one. It's a great yeah. painting. Millet, maybe? Or is it Waterhouse? Possibly Waterhouse. Waterhouse, but that's yeah. my brain defaults to Waterhouse for paintings anyway. But, I mean, one of the earlier... 
One of the earliest stories I ever read and got really fascinated with was a story of the Fisher King, you know, where he's um, part of the Grail legend, he's wounded in the leg, and therefore the land itself is wounded because there's this connection. And obviously that kind of ties in with the whole feudal system that we have in, in England anyway. And I just, I've always been fascinated by this idea that the individuals are connected to the land and this idea that you can go into the land and become more than you are and in your version obviously you've got human skill coming to play in music which you know in its own way is very poetic but in this one it was it was more organic and I suppose there might have been a bit of zombies in it as well because <laughs> you know you get buried and then you rise up but I just thought there was so much in there to play with and as well as having um wheat for hair I was like oh what else would you be transformed into um thinking of the old Norse myths you know where um Ymir gets cast down and his bones become the mountain and this that and the other and I was like oh I think I'm gonna have some poppies for the blood I think I'm gonna have some cornflowers where her tears fall as some um, because in this one rather than being buried as a some kind of you know stepmother cruelty it's actually got a more religious aspect so she's buried by a priestess um, and it's a form of sacrifice to, to try and bring fertility back to the land so that's kind of working that in as well back to the idea of old fertility goddesses and, and sacrifices so I was like oh I want to throw in all some more things and I really liked the fact that it was just a couple of lines and from there I was kind of free to do everything and I was like just throw a load of stuff at it but my source material is only two lines whereas you've got a whole ballad for your source material. So whereas I was able to just like throw stuff in and go, yep, I'm going to have that, I'm going to have a precess, I'm going to have a necromancer, I'm going to have some wheat and some poppies and some cornflowers. What about you? Did you find it very limiting or very liberating to keep within the confines of a previously known story? Was it a case of, oh, phew, I can concentrate on other aspects? Or was it a case of, oh, I've got to work all this in? <laughs> the thing is about the Tower Sisters is that if you're trying to make this story into a full-length novel, you come up quite early against the fact that the main action of the ballad is going to be near the end of the book because it can't not be. The only stuff you have to work with at the beginning is simply the the two girls meeting said man who supposedly courts both of them. So you've got and the, you know the setup of uh, who the girls are, you know how badly they fall out, you know who maybe the man is. So there's a little bit of work to do, um, you know, in that. But like turn that into a novel, and yeah. It's it's it took me you know quite a long time to build the world to to build a world in which such an audacious story could happen, um, and also because you know I come from writing fantasy, I wanted it to have a feel of you know an epic feel like there were other things going on outside the confines of this very domestic in a way story you know about two women falling out um, and having this this sort of rivalry so. One really interesting thing that uh, several readers have told me is that actually the moment where I, at the scene where I write the transformation um, of, of the girl into a harp is the most jarring scene in the whole book. It almost doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong in my own novel. And I found that so interesting to hear because actually when it came to writing it, I was, I really balked a bit at it because uh, suddenly, you know, I'd spent over a year with these characters who I had come to know and I'd worked with and they're parts of me and then I was faced with having to dismember one of them and turn them turn her into a harp and um it was I think 
I understand where people say it might it might have jarred because in a way I was forcing somebody else's story and motif into a world that that was wholly mine um and i think maybe there is a danger there with working with folk stories and folk ballads that if you want to make it original and if you want to make it yours you have to work very carefully like with with that integration in case the kind of the whole idea of the ballad like overwhelms your story um you know obviously i wanted it very much to be a a reimagining rather than just a retelling so would you have given it a different ending then? Because obviously you know what the ending's going to be and you're kind of working towards it. But were there any times when you felt yourself being tugged in a different direction then if you felt it, you know, you, you didn't want these characters to be have the ending that they did? I don't think so because I had I was pretty committed to telling to doing a reimagining of the Twa Sisters. And that is the ending of the Twa Sisters. You know, she does turn into a harp and, you know, reveals the truth about the murder. But of course, what was great about it is, and maybe this is why I didn't feel it totally necessary to make a different ending for them, is because I'd already built that world, um, you know, the world of Dumnonia. I had, the, of course, the extra character of Constantine in there. So Constantine's story interweaves with that of his sisters, but it, it isn't, you know, and it's obviously all the stories impact each other. But I felt maybe because I'd done so much world building and I'd created so many other characters that supported the world, I thought, no, it's okay. I still i am very happy to kind of follow through with the, the general plot of the ballad. So obviously the bit with the harp and the portrayal and everything comes right at the end, I know it does kind of in the the Twa Sisters as well, but when you were looking at it, what made you think I'm going to write all of this beforehand and build all these characters up and then get to the betrayal and the harp right at the end? Did you was there any point when you went, you know, I'm going to shift it a bit and I'm going to have the harp bit in the middle and then have a whole extra story about a bone harp or any point that you thought, you know, actually I'll start it with the making of the bone harp. Um, Why choose to start it right there and then go all the way through? Because it has no impact if you move it further down in the book, because it's such a horrible thing. And the ballad itself downplays it hugely. Two sisters fight and one pushes the other one in a river. I mean, that's that's murder. And it's like a murder of very close kin. And that's horrific. And how could you, how could a reader come to care for the characters or even, yeah, why would they even give a, a damn if one of them drowned if they don't know them very well? And the same applies to when one is turned into a bone harp. I really felt like it desperately needed unpacking, um, building up. Um, the problem with the these folk ballads and the same with fairy stories is often, as we've said so many times before on this podcast, that women are put into quite narrow um, stereotypes, uh, characters, sort of sets of behaviour. So in the Trois Sisters, we have an older, jealous, evil-hearted woman and then offsetting her we have the chaste maiden who is with a heart of gold and very often we these are stereotypical female roles that that are seen again and again so that was another thing that I felt needed unpacking and developing like why I, I didn't ever when I first heard the ballad I just couldn't quite believe it I thought 
no way is the younger girl completely innocent in this story. And no way is the older one who supposedly pushed her sister in the river. No way is she totally um, guilty of this crime. There must be some blurring of boundaries somewhere. And that's why I wanted to, you know, dedicate at least three quarters of the novel to exploring their relationship. When planning mine, I ended up doing the same thing. I ended up putting the final bit from the fairy tale, the bit where she gets buried, sort of like three quarters towards the end. I looked at it when I was planning. I'm like, that wasn't what I was planning at all. It was going to happen really quickly and be over really quickly and, and whatever and just be a short story. But what I actually found when I was looking into it is that it's all right for fairy tales and folk tales to just go, oh, yeah, this happened. Someone buried a stepdaughter and then the stepdaughter came up and took her back and put her in the hole and everybody was happy. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> Why did she bury her in the first place? How did the daughter survive all that time? How did the corn grow? And how did the corn learn to speak with her voice to say that she'd been murdered for people to go and dig her up so that they could then put the stepmother in? And I, I just kind of went, you know what? It might have been fine when you were sitting around the fire and everybody was telling stories and everything. But with a modern audience, you look for a bit more. You want to know why these things have happened, how they've happened. If someone's going to rise from the dead, you want to know why. And for that, I had to put in a whole fertility goddess. And for that, I had to put in a priestess. And I had to put in an altar house. And I had to put in worshippers. And I was like, oh, well, okay, so what's everybody's opinion? Why, why is this girl sacrificed? Is it something that she does voluntarily? Is it something that, you know, happens to her? And do you know what? I started it with a, a voluntary sacrifice. And then I went back and I went, it's a little bit too far from the original one because the original one was that she gets murdered. And I was like, there's such a difference between voluntarily sacrificing yourself and being murdered. And I think like you, I was quite attracted to the the darker side of it and going, you know what, that's actually quite integral to the fairy tale, this whole idea of murder and then justice, because the justice doesn't quite work if you voluntarily sacrifice yourself first. That's a whole different tale with different motivations and a different ending, I feel. The idea of justice, just deserts, um, who's guilty and who's not guilty. This is a really, it seems to be a, a very popular, um, a popular kind of motif and plot device like in fairy tales and folk, folk tales. I think maybe, maybe it comes from, um, you know, because a lot of folklore and this, these sort of stories come up from, you know, the ground upwards. You know, it's the people we're not talking about kings and queens, we're talking about common folk who, who worked on the land, pretty much had to look after themselves, who had hard lives, and probably got screwed over by, you know, we took, you mentioned the feudal system. I mean, they were almost certainly screwed over by various unscrupulous landlords or lords above them. And I wonder whether some of these stories and their with their emphasis on justice and just desserts is coming home, chickens coming home to roost, that kind of idea is that, you know, if it's a, a reaction against the fact that they feel powerless in their own lives, that there is no working welfare state that can also give them justice for, you know, for mistreatment. Absolutely. And I think that might be one of the reasons why I was drawn to having gods in mind and sort of religion because like you say the feudal system isn't particularly useful as we know it and as we've come to accept it uh, maybe they viewed it differently in the times when they were telling these stories around the fire but I kind of went it would take too long for one human to convince another human to help them um, 
So I'll just go for some gods because everybody knows that gods are there to create justice. If you read Greek myths, which I've always loved, then you've got the idea of revenge as well and being very human in, in their feelings. Um, and I kind of feel like you say that life was hard and nothing was fair. And I think one of the enduring qualities of these folk and fairy tales, however bloody they are, is that justice is done. And that is, I think, the key at both of our stories. It's a case of something terrible happens and the humans are going to get away with it or would have got away with it due to human nature, due to social status, whatever. But something magical happens and the magic redresses the balance. And I think that's a, a wonderful element of fairy tales. However that magic comes about, whether it's magicians in yours or gods in mine, it's a case of there's that little extra bit of hope that it'll all come out all right. And it's almost escapism in a really brutal way, isn't it? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, of course, in many versions of this story and in stories which are quite similar to it, um, the younger girl does come back to life um, through various magical means because that's what she deserves. You know, she never deserved to die. So that that part of the story was nuts that never repealed to me um because i felt that it somewhat in a very big way sort of drains the tension out of the entire story you've you've worked really hard to you know build up this rivalry and the emotions that underpin it and then to have her perk up at the end and say oh all is forgiven and we've all got what we wanted it's felt it was a little bit unsatisfying that's really weird because that's exactly how I felt with the end of mine because mine deliberately says, in like I say, I've only got two lines to work from and it says she comes back to life and they bury the stepmother. And I was like, that feels a bit too neat and a bit too happy to me. <laughs> right, yeah, it's too, I don't like it. I don't remember, it it's like wrapped up with a bow, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know whether it's a sign of the times and we're used to darker tales, whether it's a case of we're more cushioned in our lives so you know again going back to the idea of having a hard life you want real happiness you want definitely for people to come back to life and not to think that the people who are dead are still dead and I but I'm still such a sucker for a happy ending and I went you know what I can't I can't quite have her coming back to life but I am going to have a resolution that is satisfying that makes it feel like she's happy she's at peace um and for me, I think that was integral to it. And I'm trying to, I don't want to talk about the end of your book because your book is is brilliant and, you know, it has a, a nice ending to it. But I kind of get the feeling that you went for, if not a happy ending, then a satis satisfactory, is that the word I'm looking for? It, it, I came away mm. from it feeling like that, yeah, it was unpleasant, but nobody was particularly hard done by and it, it kind of wrapped it up nicely. Does that make sense? Is that what you were going for? Yeah, I mean, some people could say that the younger one, her ending's not great. Uh, you know, like being a bone heart for eternity. Is that what she really deserved? No, it's not what she deserved um, at all. And life sucks sometimes. And the same thing for the older, the older girl. I mean, on the surface, you think that actually she kind of gets rewarded. Um, that's a whole other thing. I mean, m moving to a land you don't know, marrying someone who you found out has been lying to you throughout your entire relationship and then being responsible for you know trying to kind of broker peace between two warring factions I mean that's not again a whole lot of fun but it, the most important thing for me is that my characters choose they choose their endings and for the older girl Riva 
that is something she would have chosen. Uh, she wouldn't have chosen just to stay in her, in her home, knowing with all of this stuff that happened and everything with her sister. But I think the thing about my version of the Twilight Sisters is that it's made somewhat, maybe it's made somewhat lighter by the the kind of positive arc of their brother's story, Constantine's story. So usually um, when people, uh, when I, when I, in fact, when I was in Madrid at the book fair recently, my editor said, if, if you could pick three words to describe your book, what would those three words be? And I had a panic <laughs> for a few seconds before I realised that actually I knew the answer to this question. And those three words would be tragedy, triumph and sisterhood. So I feel like that sort of sums up what I was going for there, that, you know, triumph and tragedy uh, are equal in this book. Um, I didn't obviously want to make it so tragic that everyone's left on a downer, but it is a terrible story. Uh, And on the surface of it, it's, it's worse because I still feel that today women do, you know, the patriarchy deliberately sets women up against other women. It prefers us to fight ourselves and each other rather than it, which is a neat solution. So, and women are very good at being jealous and fighting each other. So it's, you know, it's still very relevant today. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, that was sort of one of the reasons why I decided I'd change the stepmother from being a stepmother to a priestess because I just looked at it and went, oh, not another one where a woman is so wholly awful that she kills her own child or even where someone else's child. And stepmothers in particular in um, fantasy and folklore get such a bad rap. And I always try to avoid that or try to twist the trope around, produce a, a new side to the character. I know there are a few... I know that there's a film out there starring Drew Barrymore called Ever After, which is a retelling of the Cinderella story. And they have the wonderful Angelica Houston, who gives a much more sympathetic portrayal of the stepmother. And I mean, that has no justice in it. It's just got comedy at the end. There's none, you know, none of this dancing in red hot pokers. Was that Cinderella? I always get that one mixed up with Snow White. But um, yeah, so the ending of that is is wonderfully justice. and But it doesn't leave you feeling really awful like you know they are awful people and they absolutely deserved to end up where they ended up but you also feel a bit sorry for the fact that their punishment is just the washerwoman's daily work (laughs) can you imagine like two nobles get thrown in beside you like in i don't know and you're in the you're in an office job and they're like this is a punishment that you have earned and you will stay here for the rest of your working life and you're like but i'm here for the rest of my working life (laughs) But I wonder if it's one of the things I was thinking about, justice versus revenge. So we're thinking about Ever After, and that's not necessarily a revenge story at the end, really. It is more justice because what happens to the two noble women is that they have to learn to do what Cinderella did to begin with. And it's about redressing the balance and equalising it. It's not about going that extra step, is it? Um Revenge is definitely, I feel like, taking justice and go, yep, so you deserve to die, but I think my form of revenge is going to be really, really gruesome. And as we speak, I haven't finished the story yet. I know where it's going and I know how it's going to end, or rather I know what's going to happen, but I'm not quite sure of the details yet. And I'm pondering whether it's going to be a justice one where it's a nice quick death or whether it's a revenge where it's really quite grim and unpleasant. And I just, 
there's so much to unpack in which choice you make as a writer, whether you do just go for straightforward justice or whether you go, actually, I think my character has been treated so badly that a little bit of revenge is in order. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it absolutely comes down to character and motivation and who that person is, because justice is uh, justice is really part of civilized society. It's what we expect from the strata of of our of our state. If people do bad things, they are punished for those things. It's a simple kind of cause and effect, whereas vengeance and revenge is something else entirely. I mean, I suppose you can say you took justice into your own hands, but it, it goes beyond taking justice into your own hands because actually someone who wants revenge doesn't want justice. They actually, it's much more about them than in a way than it is about the person. They, they're not doing it for the good of society. They're not doing it to redress the balance. They're doing it, well, I mean, I suppose it is part of addressing the balance, but you know, for on a very personal level, not because I'm I believe in the cosmic order, I believe in karma and a life for a life and all of this. It's much more to do with the internal journey that the wronged character is going through. Well that's the thing about revenge. It still incorporates justice. It's it's a fascinating idea that yeah, it's just it is still justice. Uh, and, you know, where is the line between where justice becomes revenge? And is it different from which point of view you're taking it from? So if you're reading a book and someone goes after the killer of their mother, for example, and then tortures them to death, we might see that as revenge because it, it wasn't necessary. Just kill them and get it over with. But to them, maybe it is still justice. Maybe it is just enough. The revenge is just enough to put it to balance the scales for them personally. Does that make sense? Any Dragon Age fans out there will uh, recognise this debate very clearly because this is exactly what happens to one of the characters in Dragon Age called Anders, who makes a pact with a so-called good spirit whose name is Justice. And um, But at poor Anders, uh, he is very, very angry. He's an angry man uh, with good cause. He's oppressed. He's an oppressed mage. And um, at the end of the one of the storylines, he agrees that Justice can take his body, that he can share his body. Technically, this makes him an abomination, which who are generally kind of killed on sight. But he maintains his mind. But of course, what neither of them expected or anticipated is that justice would become vengeance because he would be infected by the extreme anger at the injustices that Anders felt uh, when he saw, you know, mages, himself included, you know, being mistreated. So that, that whole Dragon Age 2 is all about the, this, this balance between justice and vengeance and to get down on into gameplay level it even goes into gameplay level you actually have two different modes that he can play in um one's more of a kind of healy thing and vengeance is much more of a you know he actually harms physically harms himself in order to get more power to harm others which i think is really interesting part of vengeance that you don't mind harming yourself in order to harm those you feel need to be punished. Maybe that's what sets it apart from justice a little bit, that actually people who seek to redress the balance, to administer justice, you know, it's not such a self-harming thing. Uh, whereas vengeance, you know, we've heard this before, like if you want revenge, you're actually only hurting yourself. And, and that vengeance is hollow, you know, when you've achieved that vengeance, you're still left a broken thing. The person is dead in front of you, and what have you got? You've still 
have to deal with your great loss. Um, so I wonder whether this element of, of self-harm comes into it. Well, maybe the self-harm element is crucial for us to feel sympathy for someone who's taking revenge, because if it's just a straightforward, they the bad guy did something bad, they get arrested, they get hanged, they get whatever, and that's justice done, whatever. And it balances out the crime. Maybe revenge is often taken by someone who's been directly hurt by the crime in the first place. So you're not just getting justice for the original victim, you're getting justice for yourself as well. And if you've had a hard time tracking them down and you've had to sacrifice things to get your justice, maybe that's why you get a little bit extra for revenge because it's not just for the original crime, it's above and beyond to take account of yours. But again, is that, like you say, does that get you justice or does that just leave you a wreck on the floor? <laughs> Here we are, managed to um, uh, use Dragon Age as an example to, you know, to, to generate a fascinating metaphor uh, to aid our philosophical discussion of the differences between justice and vengeance. Uh, thank you, Dragon Age. <laughs> well, I'm just disappointed I didn't get a Star Wars quote in there somewhere. Megan will be very unhappy. She will be very disappointed. So just to wrap up, I wanted to ask about setting. When I started looking up the ATU for your story and researching into it, and I got this idea of the girl lying in the field with all of her hair growing into wheat, my first gut reaction was to try and set it in a real-world location because it was a real-world story and it was based on folklore and i just read Sister Song and my brain was full and I'm like, yes, I should do this. But when I sat down and plotted it out, I went, you know what? I feel more comfortable putting it in a fantasy setting. Now, I'm a huge fan of historical novels and historical fantasy and historical horror. I have written it. I don't have a problem with it. But just for me, I felt like I needed to put it in a fantasy realm because what I wanted to do with the religion and I couldn't bend even older English religions to make it fit in this particular way. So that's why I went for a separate fantasy location. But you set your story in the real world. So given that I avoided all those challenges by just going, you know what, I'll just have a brand new made up one. Um, what challenges did you face in introducing all the magical elements and all the folkloric elements into real life history? Well, it's funny you should say that you had that discussion with yourself because I had the exact opposite discussion, which was, I'm going to write this as a secondary world fantasy because that's what I'm used to. And then, hang on a second, no, I don't really want to do that. I want to challenge myself and try historical. So yeah, I, I went the other way and ended up in in historical, but I really did consider seriously setting it as a secondary world, which may have made it easier, but a lot less interesting. And in a way, um, I really enjoyed the challenge of uh, finding a, um, a historical era, era that could tolerate the you know, and a kind of organic filtration of of magical elements, the fantasy, the fantasy part of historical fantasy. Um, and I think that the 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 Arthurian um, era, which is loosely kind of where I'm writing in, sixth century um, AD, is perfect for this because it is already saturated in in Arthur law um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Nobody really knows where kind of history ends and myth begins. Uh, and this has really become like my most, you know, it's it's my new favourite uh, time to, to set stories in. But basically, you think, you look at the ballad, okay, Twa Sisters, what have we got here? We've got pr a pretty straight story. Um, there's not a lot of magic involved until you get to 
of course, the bone harp and how how on earth uh, one well making the bone harp. I suppose you could do that without magic, um, but then the fact that it's made so quickly and it sings on its own with the voice of the dead girl whose bones it's made of. So um, that is a major piece of magic. Uh, so I, I did have to think um, the very first draft I wrote, I wrote it without any magic in at all and really struggled to uh, when I got to that bit because I hadn't seeded any magic in the rest of the story and it proved just impossible to um, get away with this sudden intrusion of extreme magic without any you know seeding throughout so i went back and rewrote the the story as a more magical book um it's funny because the bone harp actually is not necessarily part of it's not a natural part of the magic system in sister song really the magic is all to do with the land uh, and it's a the bond between humans and the land the where the magic for the harp comes in instead of a harper i have merdin uh, or uh, you know my merlin character who is the one who actually creates the harp i mean constantine helps um, but really constantine's role in it is much more as a brother a sibling to to you know his his dead sister it's all about bonds so that's where the my my kind of magic starts to overlap here obviously the harp is created by a harper so it's somebody with talent in this particular field. So, of course, I have my Murden character who is mysterious and has those sorts of talents. But then I had to kind of blend that in with the magic I had already seeded throughout the book. So, in that sense, I used, you know, the idea of siblinghood and that this wouldn't work unless uh, Constantine took part and called out to his sister and asked her to return to her bones and to tell her story. Um, you know, which is, of course, at the heart of the book. It's uh, the bonds that we carry with us through our lives and potentially, uh, you know, in, into into our afterlives. Um, and, and I guess the idea also that of the Twa Sisters is this, you know, we, it touches again on this justice that if someone dies prematurely or suddenly, there is a story untold there. They, they want to come back and they want to, they're bound to their bones, they're bound to their mortal remains. As long as those remains are in the world, there is some binding there. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I really went about building enough magic to support the rather ostentatious idea of a singing harp made of bone well i thought it was an excellent book i really enjoyed it and if you've listened all the way to the end of this and haven't had too many spoilers and you haven't read it you should definitely go out and get it it is an excellent book thank you but i'm also really intrigued by the <laughs> by your short story and i really want to read it and hopefully you say it's uh, it's going to be published Yes, so Fantastic. I, have, I have a series called Forsaken Fables, which I am building up. It's, it's sort of self-published um, just because, you know what, sometimes it's just not worth the effort of trying to put things through publishers and you go, this is a good little story and I don't want to, I don't want it to sit in a queue for six months while someone looks at it and then maybe take another two years, even if they do like it. So what I've done, and they're all themed, they are um, stories where it is an ordinary girl up against magic because I tend to find a lot of fairy stories are very much like oh well I've got all this magical stuff and and all these magical things to help me whereas I try to make these stories about girls who've been abandoned by society perhaps abandoned by magic and then have to work against magic to 
succeed to survive and things like that so uh, so i'm hoping it'll be out with that very soon um so yes we're going to sign off from the main episode now um but we're going to continue with a couple of extra questions for our patreon supporters if you want to become a patreon supporter for our podcast then we would love that and you get to access extra reviews and content and our membership level start for as little as one pound a month So we will sign off now. And thank you so much, Lucy, for indulging me and having a good old chat about folklore. Oh, it was my pleasure. Anytime. You know, (laughs) know me in folklore. (laughs) We'll have to do some more. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.